Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week, we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scripture all his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing with our study of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And in this lesson, we finish the third chapter of this great, tremendous book. Today, we look at the final five verses of this chapter and the story of the big furnace and the fire that did not burn up the three who were thrown into the fire heated six times hotter than ever before. May I add that this is not just a story, it actually happened. Listen to the prior two lessons and this lesson to get the whole story. On a personal note from me, these three lessons have not only been enjoyable to listen to, but they have made a huge impact on my spiritual heart. I think that as you listen, you will also feel that tug from God regarding our position with Him. Next week, we will begin the fourth chapter of Daniel in this very exciting book. For right now, Doug is at the podium ready to begin. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets weekly on Sunday mornings at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. May I invite you to visit when you are able as we learn so much from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. And now here is our teacher and friend, Doug Brady. We are studying the book of Daniel. It's an exciting book to me. It's amazing to me because I've taught this book before and I thought I knew everything about it. And I was so wrong. And I have found so many different things. I mean, now when you think about it, I taught Daniel chapter 3 last time in one Sunday, and now we're on our third Sunday. But anyway, if you remember the last time we met, we spoke about it being cool in the furnace for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, it's important to understand something there. Why was it cool in the furnace? Because Jesus was there. Now, I know there's some people who think, no, it wasn't Jesus. I am even more convinced this week that it was Jesus who was there with them. And uh, we saw a, a very important principle, and that is that God did not eliminate the trial. Many times we want to say, I'm facing this serious trial. Lord, can you stop it? Can you eliminate it? Can you get rid of it? He doesn't do that generally. What does he do? He goes through it with you. He says, let me hold your hand. And it's interesting, I've heard some com commentators say this, you know, when you read the passage, it says, and I see, how many men we throw in there, Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, three, I see four men and they're walking around. You could, some, some commentators say you could translate that, they're dancing in there. Well, you know, what are you going to do when the first time you get to see Jesus personally? You get to spend an hour, an hour and a half talking to him. Maybe dancing would be appropriate. But be that as it may, I tried to trick Don last time 
by asking him, was anything burned in the furnace? Uh, but I couldn't, I was unable to trick him. He came back and said, yes, the ropes that were tied to them, they got burned off. You did. She's not here today, so you're in serious trouble. Uh, when I ask you a question, I know. Um, but anyway, and Steve's not going to help you today. I want you to know. But it illustrates that what God does want to do is burn the shackles that the world seeks to bind us with off so that they are no longer there to hinder us from being, you know, with the Lord Almighty. Now, I know this sounds strange to you, and we're going to study chapter 3, but we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And we start right there. Did what happened in the prior portion of chapter 3 we were studying last week, did the, those three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, demonstrate faith? Yes, they did. Clearly they did. You see, our God is able to deliver us. But if you remember, it's his ability was not the primary thing they stressed to start with. What was? His existence. Our God is. And he is able to deliver us if he so chooses. So existence is very important. If the God doesn't exist, he can't do anything. Just like a Mount Carmel, Baal couldn't do anything. Because he wasn't real. So... What are we to have faith in here in Hebrews 6? For he who comes to God must believe that he is. What is that? Existence. If you don't believe God's real, you can't have a relationship with him. If you can't believe that God is real, he's not going to respond to you. If you believe that he is real, then everything changes. And that's the first step. We must believe that he is. Secondly, we have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, a rewarder of those who seek him. Number one, what does it mean to seek him? And what kind of rewards are we talking about? Are we talking about a pie in the sky? I don't think so. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about life experiences here in, in Hebrews chapter 11, about the result of men and women's faith. Now, seeking him has to do with getting close to him, close to him. Now, what kind of rewards does he give? We're going to talk about that a little bit in, in just a minute. Before we go any farther, let's pray. Father, as we open up your book, we see this statement you made in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to see the way you're starting to change the heart of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. Help us to understand that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you have a plan, and your plan is going to come to fruition no matter what we choose to do. Help us, Father, to build our faith. Help us to realize that faith is like a muscle. If you don't use it, it atrophies. Help us to understand that faith needs to be regularly exercised so that it can become stronger so that they become more able, so that it will be there when we need it. I pray these things, Father, in your Son's name. Amen. So, in turning over, I want us to look in Daniel chapter 3, 
And I want us to start in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. And he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Do you think that one of them might have said to the fourth person who was with him, do we have to? Can we go back with you? But he said, they, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed. If that's for me, Tim, I have to call them back. Nor was the hair on their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, and had, nor did they have the smell of smoke even come upon them. Now, I want you to consider something. You have a... Did you notice he didn't say all four of you come out? No. I think he was a little scared. And that may tie into this next point, David. What was the name that he used to refer to those men's God? What? Most High God. Isn't that what he said? The Most High God. In Hebrew, that's El Elyon. El Elyon. Sometimes they would just say it, Elyon, the Most High. Now, you know, we've done a study on the names of God, and we studied that name. And you, I aimed in that study to understand what exactly it mean, meant and how it came about. But there's something I never looked at before. Who normally uses that name? Oh, Satan. Oh, somebody's been studying. Let's look at some passages. I want you to identify each time the one who's using the name. I'll read the passage, and then you tell me who's using the name. We're going to start with Isaiah. Uh, I will ascend. Now, let's start this way. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. Who said that? All right, let's look at the next one. He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alteration in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Who's that? Who? Not Satan. The Antichrist. He's going to say that in chapter 7 of Daniel. He's referred to as a little horn. Look in Mark chapter 5, verse 7. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Who's talking? A demon. Look again in Luke chapter 8, verse 28. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Here again, demon. Now look at this one, Acts 16, 7. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Who said that? <laughs> 
A demon-possessed girl said that. Now, I want you to think about this very carefully. Is that negative to Paul and to uh, Silas? I think it was Silas, either Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Cyrus there, Silas in uh, Acts 16. Why would a demon-possessed girl say that? Because even the demons are controlled by the Most High God. And you see that? But that's the kind of, that's how this name is used very often. What does that say about Nebuchadnezzar? What does it say about the people who have been influencing Nebuchadnezzar for so long until Daniel took over? You begin to see this is a real spiritual warfare. Nebuchadnezzar is believed to be Satan's man. Do you think Satan wants to let him go? No, he does not. And he's going to keep working. He was trying to use him to get rid of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he spectacularly failed. But this name is also one that can be used as a reverential praise name for God. If you read Genesis 14 or Psalm 7 or 78, you'll see that. Now, I want us to look. He responds and said, Shadrach, Meshach, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. There's a progression going on in his life, and I want you to see that. Now go back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 17. So, first, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And the king talked with them, and out of them not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. Now, was God directly mentioned in that passage? No. But what had God done? He had gifted these men who trusted in him. Oh, you begin to see now something that goes on from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Those who have the faith that he exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him, he rewards them. These guys were so brilliant when they graduated from Babylonian school that he made them in charge. I mean, I want you to think about this. Can you imagine Doug? You know, Doug used to be the head of Guardier Wynn. Can you imagine somebody coming to you? I've been interviewing this fella who just graduated. In fact, these three guys who just graduated from law school. You need to talk to them. You talk to them and you say, well, I think we ought to put them in charge of the whole, whole firm. You don't do that with people who just graduated from law school. But that's in effect what Nebuchadnezzar did. These guys were so brilliant. Where'd that brilliance come from? God, you see, he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, the next step in Nebuchadnezzar's life, in chapter 2, and the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, even since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, notice the concept, though. Your God. Not my God, not the God, just your God. Is he still someone who uh, believes in, in a number of gods? Yes, he's not a monotheist yet. He's, uh, he's still, but he's saying, your God is special. Your God is very impressive to me, Daniel. Now we come to chapter 3. Yes. He also said, Lord of kings. Lord of kings. 
ruler over kings. Because he, why? He just had that demonstrated to him, didn't he? And it's going to get even stronger. In chapter 3, then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace, and he responded and said to Shadrach, come out, you servants of the Most High God. So now he's saying, these guys are servants. They're not just brilliant. Now I understand why. They're servants of the Most High God. And then we come to verse 28 in that same chapter, and Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve any god except their own god. Now here again, he's not a monotheist. He's not recognizing this god as his god yet, but he's seeing that this god is awfully special. And he's just seen it demonstrated to him again. And so this is something we need to see. Now, there's something else I think is important. Who organized and set up this gathering to worship the golden image? Well, uh, whose image was it? Nebuchadnezzar's. He, who did he bring to, to, to this event? The leaders from everywhere. Uh, scholars estimate there's something like 300,000 people there on the plain of Dura to participate in this gathering for the golden image. 300,000. But now, I want you to see reality. Whose gathering really was it? Because he is going to introduce himself not only to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to all of those people there who were leaders of Babylon. Was Nebuchadnezzar the only one who examined them? All of them came up and looked at him. We can't believe this. If you had seen those men walking out of that furnace that had flames coming out from everywhere because they heated it much hotter than it was supposed to be heated, and then you looked at them personally and saw their eyebrows weren't even singed. They didn't smell like smoke. Do you think you could ever forget that? No. That was God's introduction to these, all of these leaders that he's going to work on and he's going to change. And I want you, wanted you to see that. Now let's look in verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the, be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Now, I want you to notice a phrase here that I think is important for us to see. Let's start with just the first line. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said. Well, now wait. What's the course of events here that we know of that we're reading in the book? What's the course of events? Well, he throws them in. He waits until he gets cool enough for him to look. He goes and he looks in the door. He sees, he says, wait a second, something's wrong. There's four in there. I just put three. And then he says, you guys come out. And he looks at him. He has all his other people looking at him. They're not burned. They're not singed. They don't smell like smoke. And then he responds and says, what is he responding to? He's responding directly to what God did directly to the power of God. That's the first thing I want you to see. And how does he respond? Look what he says. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. 
what would that response be characterized as? Worship, praise, and worship. I want you to see that a second. Because sometimes we hear this word worship, we don't know what that necessarily means. Sometimes we think, well, that means getting together and singing. No, worship is a direct response to God. Do you know when the word worship was first used in the Bible? Genesis chapter 22. Abraham had been told by God, you take your son, your only son, the son of your love, and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there to me. Now, was there any singing going on then? He gets up immediately. He goes. Now, he's got two servants with him, but maybe they would interfere in what he's going to do. So he leaves them there, and just he and Isaac go on. And the conversation is, well, what are you going to do? Isaac, my son and I, we're going to go over there. We're going to worship God, and then we're going to return. That's the first time the word was used. He was responding to what God was going to do. Why? Because if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, he believed he was going to kill his son, and God was going to immediately raise him from the dead. That's what he, didn't he hear him say, he and I, the lad and I will go over there and worship, and then we will return. You see, it's a response to something God does. Who and what God is, that's what we should worship. That should stir us to worship and to praise. And I think that's over, but that's important. Nebuchadnezzar was so overwhelmed with what he had just seen and heard and witnessed that this was only the natural reaction to glorify God. When was the last time you saw something witnessed something, experienced something, that the only thing you could do was just praise God. Well, if you're not experiencing something like that, you ought to. And you say, well, what am I? Start asking God. Show me you. Show me your existence. And I want to respond that way, God, when you do something in my life so that I can worship you because I want to be a true worshiper. Worshiper has to do with truth. And being just absorbed by that truth. And you look at that. What did he see? He saw a display of omnipotence, of sovereignty and faithfulness. Now, here again, we come to this question of his angel and who that is. I think you look in Psalm 34 where it says, And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now, Here's the question. Are we to fear just an angelic being? No, we're only to fear God. God should be the only one who, to whom we reverentially fear. Now, let's look at something else it says in here, in, in this passage. You notice this phrase right here, who put their trust in him. Some people want to say faith and trust, that's New Testament. Oh, no, it's not. When Paul wanted to use the example of salvation by faith and faith alone, who did he go to? Who did he use? Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him in righteousness. Genesis chapter 15. It's all about faith. Here it's about trust, faith, belief. We should understand them to basically be the same thing, interchangeable. This is what it's all about. That's how a life of godliness comes. But it's not just faith for salvation, is it? It's faith through the entire sanctification process. 
as you're growing closer to God, the key to that is faith. Faith unlocks the door to loving God. It unlocks the door to knowing God. It unlocks the door to fearing God. And then brings about obedience in your life. The kind of obedience that he wants, even craves. The life of godliness is all about faith. You know, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Does it say the righteous man shall be saved by faith? That's not what we're talking about. It's talking about after salvation. You can't be a righteous man before salvation, can you? No, he says, your righteousness is like filthy rags before you know me. Only my righteousness is pure and white. And he says, but if you want to do that, it's by faith. You have to grow your faith. Growing faith allows you to do things like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah could do when they face the fiery furnace. And when you come to face the furnace in your life, you need to have exercised your faith. I need to have exercised and grown my faith so that I can stand up. Now, let me ask you something. Does God give you pre-warnings about the furnace coming? Not often. No, you need to be prepared to respond by faith. Always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that lives within you. Always being prepared for it. Because they're not usually a road map. You know, they didn't tell. Daniel couldn't come and work with these guys saying, in two years, you know, you're going to face a fiery furnace and you need to be ready how to respond. Let's plan what you're going to say. No, that didn't happen. Didn't happen at all. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was obviously quite impressed. Yes. Did provide for them to be prepared for that? Well, it paved the way. Like he will lead you there if you will follow. Then did Daniel lead before? Yes. But now they didn't know they weren't going to have their leader. Didn't it didn't work out. Daniel wasn't going to be there. Satan didn't want him there, and God didn't want him there. Interesting how there was that agreement on that. But now, we're looking here at this statement by Nebuchadnezzar. Again, I want to remind you, he refers to him as your God, the most high God. And there's something really important here I want you to see. And it's something we need to come to understand. Because Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't learned the truth of what he needs. And this is the problem for us today. There's so many of us who haven't learned the truth of what we really need. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was greatly and truly affected by the manifestation of God's power in this event. He was affected by the manifestation of his power, but not the source of the power. Do you see the difference? Affected by the power, but not the source as of yet. This is something that plagues God's people, and we've got to come to learn it. Now, when God took his people out of Israel, pardon me, out of Egypt, they had to spend 40 years in the Midian Desert. Did God do things to demonstrate his power to them over and over again? Jerry, I'm going to skip 103 for just a second. You see, these people... They knew of and they witnessed his deeds. Moses went beyond that. Well, wait a second. What's the difference here? 
This difference, I think, is best illustrated in the lives of these people as they journeyed from Egypt and through the desert. The people were all eyewitnesses of the miracles that God performed. They walked across the dry seabed of the Red Sea. It was dry when they walked across. They could all remember that. They saw that. They saw the walls of water on each side. They saw the entire Egyptian army drowned in that same seabed. They, along with Moses, they followed a cloud by day. They saw the pillar of fire by night. They saw that. They ate the manna that God provided them every day. They ate the quail that he provided them. They and Moses, they drank from the water that sprang from the rock, you know, that Moses smote. They were content with receiving God's blessings and provisions without ever getting to know his ways. Look back, or let's look now at Psalm 103, 7. I want you to look at this. I found this passage, and this is so key to me to see. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Were those the same thing? No. Some of you read that, that's just repetitious. They're saying the same thing over and over like they do in Psalms and Proverbs. Oh, no. You see, Moses learned his ways. That means he learned God. The other, they just learned his acts. And they couldn't even learn to rely on those. And we need to come to see what's going on here because I think this is so important for us. Moses was different. He saw beyond the provision of God to the person of God. You think about it for just a second. Moses came to realize that the way that God acted opened a window to his nature, to his character, to his heart. Moses wanted to experience God, not his activity. Do you remember when the people turned against God at one point and God was talking to Moses up on the mountain? He said, you know what? I'm just going to kill them all. And Moses, we'll get your wife and we'll just start over with you and her. Oh, the whole nation will be Mosesites? He said, oh, please don't. Don't do that, God. I don't want that. And God said, okay. But I'll tell you what. They're going to do this again. And if I'm there, I might just kill them all. So I will send an angel to be the leader from now on. And he'll lead you through the wilderness and into the promised land. Moses says, no, don't do that. We want you. It's important that we get to learn and know and be with you, God, not an angel. I don't want to settle for an angel. I want you. You know, you think about it. Kathy, you have a choice. He says, Every night before you go to bed, I'll have an angel there for 30 minutes that you can spend there, or you can have Jesus. Is there any question what you're going to do? Yes, faithful. Now, I want you to see that the people knew of God, but Moses knew God. So the question is, what about you? What and who do you know? Do you want that changed? Do you want to get to know God Better. Are you satisfied with merely knowing the acts of God? I mean, think about it. Many people today, like the Israelites, they're content with just experiencing God's activity without ever coming to really know Him. They're recipients of answered prayer. Yes, the prayers were answered. My prayers were answered. Other people's prayers, and this and that. Yet they never experienced the provider. Their families, their homes, their livelihoods are protected by the Lord, but they still don't seek to experientially. Know the one who provided that protection. Question. 
I think that the Jewish people saw his miracles and they started taking them for granted. And I think today they still think that God protects them and that they're God's people, but they're not thankful. They're not, they're not open to have a personal relationship. They're all about religion. And then spiritual activity, not spiritual knowledge. And that's the thing we got to come to understand. You know, we live in a nation that's like in a little bubble right now of religious, semi-religious freedom now. It used to be religious freedom. Now it's semi. That's going to change. But the rest of the world is, saying, is going to say, welcome to our world. The rest of the believers. They're dying in unprecedented numbers. There are more people in the last 20 years to die martyrdom in this world than there were in the first 20 years. Oh, no, no. The, the persecution in the first 20 years of the church was... No, it wasn't. Well, even you can go 2,000 years. It, it, it's not... You don't realize what's going on in this world. Cut off the captain's comment. He's faithful. Right. We're not faithful. Right. The, the lack of faith is not his, and we're not. Faithful and faithful and faithful. It is a covenant, and the covenant he cannot break. So that's why. It's a shame, isn't it? We must come to understand that coming to learn not what God does, that will change our lives, but who he is. That's what will change our real lives, who he is. Let's look at verse 29. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar says, I make a decree that any people or nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb to limb, limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Now, I don't know, it's my habit to always say, the term rubbish heap, that's not a very accurate translation. Uh, King James is more accurate here. They say dunghill. If we wanted to translate it exactly, it would be rather coarse in words I wouldn't say. Well, it should be words I don't say at any time. But that's the concept that he is saying. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you're beginning to see as a passionate man, he tends to go overboard. Yeah, if you say anything bad about their God, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and make your house dunghill. Now, Nebuchadnezzar now provides governmental protection to those who worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that'll last until the Persians come. And he recognizes there's no other God who's able to deliver in this way. But God is still not Nebuchadnezzar's God. He still doesn't know and hasn't put his faith in the one true God. But he will. It's coming. All right. Verse 30. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the provision of Babylon. Who arranged for the reward for these three men? He's a rewarder of those who seek him, isn't he? Now, let's look at a couple of things before we finish today that I think are important for us to see. You look at this interaction that Nebuchadnezzar and Satan planned for this golden image. This was according to Satan's plan. Don't don't anybody kid you. And you compare it with the statue of the beast that will be set up in the tribulation temple. And this event is clearly a type of the Antichrist and his statue worship. 
There can be no question. And this is a type. And this is coming. You know, some of us would say, oh, come on. We are way beyond that. We will never worship a statue. I thought about putting a picture up here of uh, Kim Jong-un and his father and a number of people around it who were bowing down. It's coming, especially if that statue starts to breathe and talk. But let's look. You know, you say, well, it's, it's the same thing. Well, let's look. Look at Revelation chapter 13, 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercised all the authority of the first beast. Now, let's stop there so that you know. The first beast is the Antichrist. The second one is the false prophet. Now, we're not going to get any speculation as to who they are. And he exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Makes it look like he rose from the dead. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come back to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the beast to be killed. Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar's plan in a manner of speaking, right? And he, caused, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and slaves. What does that tell us is going to happen during the tribulation? Slavery. To be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. So either on the back of the right hand or on your forehead, they'll give this mark. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now that's this beast, this statue set up, and it's going to require that. Do you see any indications in our world today to condition anybody to take a mark such as this. Yes. Don't use the V word right now. I get getting in trouble for that. Uh, but I want you to know that's exactly right. Now, <laughs> there, here's the thing though. You have to make this decision whether you're going to take the mark. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't own, you can't work unless you have that mark. I would wager that you know people who are going to have to make that decision. Now you think about that. They're going to have to make that decision. Do I take the mark or not? Well, could you say, you know what? I know this mark means nothing. And I can take it, and I don't believe in that. And, you know, I may do some lip service to that stinking statue over there, but it's not real for me. It's not in my heart. I don't believe that. I can just take the mark to get by. What happens to those people? Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will not rest day or night, those 
who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. You're absolutely right. We aren't. But I'll bet you know people who will be here, who have to take that. Now, I want you to see something interesting. What do you, what does it mean? Does it change the meaning to say it goes up forever and ever? Why can't you just say it goes up forever? Doesn't it mean the same thing? Yes and no. Yes, they're using the same word forever and ever. It's the same word in English. But it means this is intensifying what I'm saying. It's going to last forever. Now, there's a reason why it came to mean that in the English. Because if you look at this word in the Greek, it's aeon. And aeon can be translated eternity, forever, everlasting. It also can be translated an age. That is a period of time within which something could happen. Here, it uses the same repetition of that Greek word. So there's only one way to translate it. Forever and ever, for, is you don't say age and an age. If you said an age and age, you'd just say an age for one time. So you'd only have aeon there once if you were talking about a time period that had a beginning and an end. But if there's no end, then you repeat it. And that's something to think through. Well, why? Everybody knows that. Oh, no, they don't. There's people who are going to tell you, yeah, you're going to hell, but you won't stay there forever. Your punishment will stop. And then either you'll disappear and never be heard from again, but you won't be tormented forever and ever and ever, or you'll be able to go to heaven after that because you've been punished appropriately. That is not what the Bible teaches. And we may sometime be able to expand on that. But I just wanted to mention that because it's there in that passage that I wanted you to see. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, as he examines these three young men, he recognizes the integrity in these men and he rewards it. He says, I'm going to put you in high positions. You see, God arranged this reward. You know, it's interesting. One of the six attributes of integrity is the willingness to stand alone for what's right. Were these men willing to stand alone? Yes, yes they were. It always brings up the question, when the time comes, will you be willing to stand alone? It's one thing when a whole bunch of people stand. It's another thing when it's only you. You have to prepare yourself ahead of time, otherwise you'll end up failing. For these young men... The outcome of the trial was irrelevant. He said, wait a second. What do you mean the outcome of the trial was irrelevant? That can't be. Their lives were at stake. Didn't that mean anything to them? The answer is no. Well, wait, how can that be? You see, what was at stake was not whether God had the ability to override Nebuchadnezzar's decree in their mind. That was not at stake. They knew he could if he wanted to, but that was not... Not at stake. Neither were their lives, whether they lose their lives or not at stake. What was at stake was their faithful obedience, no matter what the cost. That was what was at stake. Will I obey no matter what's at cost? You know, I can remember a time in my life when I would talk to God and I'd say, you know, whatever I have, I'll pay for you. It doesn't matter. You can, they can do whatever they want to to me. And and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand for you. And then, oh, about 11 years ago, he came to me and said, you remember when you used to tell me that? Yeah. 
What if it's not to you, but it's to Julie? You still going to obey me no matter what? That starts to get hard, doesn't it? Real hard for me. But these men were willing to stand alone no matter what the cost was. And I pray that God would give me a heart like that. And you. The next thing I want us to think about is this. We have to come to recognize that God does not always rescue his people. You know, we read about this in the book of Daniel. They said, we're not eating, that defile us. God rescued them. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm killing all these wise men, I'm tired of it. And God rescued them. They didn't bow down to that image and God rescued them. The decree went out, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, nobody can pray to anyone other than the king for the next 30 days. In Daniel chapter 6. And Daniel, knowing the decree was signed, went into his bedchamber where he had his windows open towards Jerusalem. Windows facing westward. And he knelt and prayed. He could have just closed those windows. Couldn't he? And they'd have never known. But if he had done that, would he have spoken and acted with unashamed boldness? Would he have compromised? Yeah, he didn't. And because of that, he got thrown in a lion's den, a den of hungry lions. Did God rescue him? Yes, he did. So God rescues every Christian gets put in this kind of situation, doesn't he, right? No, no he doesn't. Why not? I want you to think about that. Why doesn't God do that? Well, it's really very simple as I start to, you know, my first blush is, well, he should. No, he shouldn't. I want you to see this. Think about James, the brother of John, disciple. He spent three years with Jesus, the very first. John, his brother, brought him. James to Jesus, right at the very start of Jesus' public ministry as he was calling his disciples. And right at the end, right after Jesus left, Herod arrested him and he beheaded him. Wait a second. He spent three years preparing this guy and he just let him die? Being beheaded? Yes. Why doesn't God rescue his people? He has the ability to, doesn't he? Well, of course he has the ability to. Wouldn't that give a great effect on non-believers to know, yeah, if you need to be rescued, God will rescue you if you belong to him. Well, let's think this through for a minute, the effect it would have on people. If God always rescued those who belong to him, his followers, they no longer would need faith. They would need to trust God. Belief in God would become a massive insurance policy. And there would be lines of people ready to sign up for such policy. God will always rescue me. No. You see, the real believer should be faithful no matter what God chooses to do in a life-threatening predicament. Just like Hananiah and Azariah were. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to your golden image. To me, that's the key. That's why he doesn't rescue. He wants faithful believers, not insurance policy purchasers. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you again for being with us today. 
having your Holy Spirit here to explain to us the meaning of these scriptures. Help us to understand what's going on in these three young men's life and what we're going to be facing and how we need to be prepared. Our, our country's turned pagan, God. Some of us, a lot of us would vomit if we knew how really wicked we were. But you do, and I know you probably feel the same way. And so, Father, I pray that you will prepare us to, to stand up no matter what we have to sacrifice or who we have to sacrifice, that we are yours and you can count on us. That doesn't come down to what you're going to do. It comes down to what you've commanded us to do. Help us to be faithfully obedient. And then, Father, pray that you'll come back for us soon. Please come back quickly. Now, I know it's your will and your plan, but if there's any possible way this fall, we would really love to have you come back for us so we can be in heaven with you. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.